Hi, it's Thursday afternoon, I guess. Almost 6.30 now. I'm trying to squeeze something in between... Had a bunch of classes today, and then a Vada meeting, and then uh, now I have a, the Shul Zoom soon, and then we have our Zaini Chabrusa later on. By the way, I want to, um, my own, uh, we're going to dedicate this talk today to the Mazel Tov, to the wedding of Mary Newberger's daughter. They just got married this week. Yehudas to Mordechai Edelstein. They're one of these Lag Bomber weddings. And so, uh, in the words of Chazdei Kreska's time stands still, you know. Uh, but Molotov to Mayor and his family. And with that, I will proceed. Although, still looking for some help with the um, lectures, the, the video lectures, the lecture I'm hoping to do in June. Uh, but I'll leave that alone for now. This week, of course, is um, a double parsha of Harmachu Kosai, which means the Tochacha. That's what I always zoom, zoom in on. And there's just a couple ideas running through my mind, I think I'd rather do it now than wait till later. I have to have a chavusa later on this evening. It'll interfere with that. When we get to the Tilchacha, there's several basic uh, uh, things that strike you, or at least strike me. First of all, you know, there are two Tilchachas, one in Vayikra and one in Dvarim. And there's a certain style, what I call, you know, the Parshanun style, in which, you know, the classic sort of dialectical approach, in which you see, if you have two Tilchachas, and one is by Yisrish, and one is by Shani, has a a lot of stuff like if you're interested in that approach, which I'm not, you look at Nachshoni in those places, as I recall by memory, and he will line up all those who try to figure that stuff out. Uh, it's interesting, it's a certain mahalo. I'm just not into it myself. And one of the reasons on the interest it doesn't strike me as correct is what do you do with Hitler? There's no question to me, I'm only sharing. What makes sense to me? No question, Hitler is some kind of manifestation of Tochacha. And the reason I say is because all the things described there happened. My father went through this stuff, you know. My parents went through the war. My father was in the concentration camp and all that business. And he told me many times, you know, you know you're know, reading the Tochacha about this and about that. And he said, I saw this and I saw that. And I experienced this and I experienced that. From the terror, he didn't experience cannibalism, but he lost kids, you know. And the starvation and all the, the all the things that are mentioned in the Tocha, you really find happen. So what are you going to say? One's talking about Yisrael, one's talking about Shani, and then Hitler is just oops, that's just like a coincidence. That's ridiculous. But rather, it leads one to the unfortunate speculation that the Tocha Club, in whatever form it assumes, whether the uh, Vayikra type or the Dvarim type refers to a cyclical uh, uh, phenomenon that occurs and reoccurs in Jewish history from time to time, as rarely as we hope. And it is, whether we like it or not, one of the signs that, you know, the Torah is kind of true because these things do happen. No one likes to hear that, especially now, during the Corona era. So, you know, you have two approaches. One says God, uh, you know, did this, and here's the reason why. And the other one says, there is no God, it just happens by happenstance. You know, you look out there. I looked in the forward the other day online. I said, you know, the God has nothing to do with this. And so, you know, we live in crazy times. But from the, from the firm perspective, every misfortune comes from God, just like every fortune. And so, if you have something as vivid and horrible as you described in the Tocha, and it happens and re-happens in Jewish history more than once or twice, 
more than once or twice. So then it's part of the Messias. The same way the Shabbos and Kashras and the uh, Tzitzis is all part of the Messias. <laughs> it's just existential. It's always there. So the Tochelah, whether we like it or not, is always hanging in the background. And you don't need me to tell you there are plenty of anti-Semites right now who would love to just open the book of Leviticus and just implement this line by line. We have a lot of vicious enemies out there. Everybody knows that. That's why it drives us crazy when you see these people make Hashem's and cause anti-Semitism in Ava because of the corona and this other stuff. Like, what, 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 what do you give them a cherubi Adam Largainu for? And so, you end up with the idea that the Tocha is always in Ogea because, um, as I said before, we see it occurring, recurring. Now, when I was growing up, it was a different attitude. When I was growing up, it was post-World War II, and the decades after World War II, and people really believed that what happened is over and can't happen again, and anti-Semitism is more or less dead, and Hitler can never revive, and, you know, we're moving to a, a, a better world, and now you have the United Nations, a world of peace and freedom and, and, and democracy, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Well, you and I have lived long enough to be wiser. And Plato said only the dead have seen the end of war, and uh, similarly, only the dead have seen the end of anti-Semitism. It's, it's there. I don't say make a tocha every day, because we couldn't survive that, but it comes and happens. Now, it's not a happy thought, but that's not my intention today. Having said that, therefore, my attention is always drawn to the tocha. Again, I remember after the war, the Kleisenberger Rebbe says it's not happening again. You could say the tocha out loud and slow. I used to hear these kinds of things. And obviously, somebody went through the camps, you know, it's indescribable, so anything after that it can never happen again. But that's more of a, to my mind, that's more of an emotional reaction to the horrors of the Holocaust. Tocha is out there. Out there. Now, having said that, the language is always funny. If you look at it closely. I don't mean the language of the Tocha, because then that's pretty direct. But the build-up at the beginning of Bechukosai. For example, as, you know, as we all know, it's the Bechukosai Telecho. What do you mean? How do you holech and chok? How do you walk? The, the, I'm always drawn to the Hebrew it, it, weirdism. You don't walk in law, right? Bechukosai Telecho. You don't walk in law. And Rashi, of course, it's a Chazal, not Rashi. It's a, you know, Amel and Batoro. And, uh, and Rashi even goes on to say, Lishmar Lakayim. And that's very interesting. Because to walk in the law means, yeah, to, to, no, it's to walk correctly in the law, or to use better English, to properly administer the laws of the Torah uh, requires uh, Amelus. Uh, one of the great uh, problems is a what's the right word an un an an incompletely educated judge. Some of those dialogue a little bit. There's going to Paskin wrong. Many rabbinim fall into this category. Let's be honest. And because who can be holding and everything and be mine every sugya you know that you have be holding. If you're lucky, you happen to be learning now. Hachusitzes and somebody come and ask you a question. Sitzes. So you can sound off like you know everything. If you're lucky, somebody can ask you a question of Chosh Mishra, you just happen to learn about so you're able to answer the spot. There aren't that many people that can answer anything at any time. So a mail and means that you undertake to understand the meaning of the Torah and therefore be able to, uh, to walk with the law, to apply the law correctly. And that's basically an argument in favor of learning 
with the idea of a suki shmaitz elibid hilchasot. To find out what the actual halacha is, which is one of two ways the Torah has always been studied. There's always been two streams. You'll never change this because it, it responds to different personalities. There are people out there who naturally go for lamedas, and frankly, the halacha bores them. And some people the other way around. Many people the other way around. And it's funny that the Lithuanian yeshivas that we have today are built around the idea of number one. It's an acre when you're in yeshivas to learn the lamedas. With the expectation that uh, when you leave, and if you want to be a learned balabasa, or especially if you want to go into the rabbinate, somewhere along the line, kolel, later on, you learn up the halachas by yourself. But meanwhile, you want to know the Reb Chaim's. And it's always been a debate. Never go away. You know, what's the right way to teach? What's the right way to learn? With the boys in high school, with the boys in, in base medish do better with a halacha lamaisa type of curriculum? Or not? When I say halacha lamaisa, I mean, in other words, to understand the sugi well, to be a milam b'tora, so you be chuko lechu? Or is that wrong? Or is the ikr, you know, the, the, the iun, as they say, the lumdus? And as it'll always be, you know, this debate. You know, there are gedolim, obviously, who excel in A and B. There are. But that's what makes them gedolim. Not everybody's like that. Most people, if they excel, excel in one or the other. And that's pretty impressive, right? You show me somebody who excels in the lumdus, even if you don't know the halacha very well, wow, it's still pretty impressive. Alternatively, you show me somebody who's a bucky balocha. I mean, you know, he knows the sug is clear. And, you know, he's on to the long, that's still very impressive. In uh, Kabbalah, when you get a double, somebody combines both. So, is understood already that you're going to walk into laws, and therefore you'll be Amelim in the Torah. What's the words of Rashi? Amelim in the Torah, Almanas Lishmer Lakayim. That's not Allah Lamaisa. Not Allah Lamaisa. Doesn't say, you know, to, to, to be uh, speculate. Now, um, in the, in return for that, so what do you get? What do you get? So, first of all, there's this remarkable passage that I always call attention every year whenever I look at the parsha, where it says, I'll walk among you. What, what, what does that mean? Rashi immediately switches, uncharacteristically, in my opinion, uh, to a uh, kind of a mystical, Olam Habadik interpretation. Right? Compare Rashi and Ibn Ezra, for example. And you'll see that Rashi says, Right? I'll walk with you in Gan Eden. God's all company in Gan Eden. That's Ruchnius. So, Then you'll be rewarded in Gan Eden, and you'll be near me, near the Shechina. We'll walk together, as it were, and in Olam Haba, or whatever, and uh, that's what it'll be. The most of the other mafarshim, at least that I know about, don't quite understand it that way. Uh, but rather, they look at the word visalachti. I walk among you, and uh, you understand it more like a physical thing that God will be among you when you walk. So I'm walking the shul. If I have the right intentions, Shin is walking with me. So it's quote unquote. Uh, what does what the Ibn Ezra say here? When you go into battle and you take the Migdash, I guess the, 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 the Aaron or something like with you, 
then I will go with you and give you victory. This, of course, means otherwise it won't work. The classic example in the Tanakh is the Battle of Ofek at the beginning of Shmuel Aleph, where the Jews are wicked, but they go into battle against the Philistines, and on the first day they start losing. The second day they bring the Aron. The police immediately say, uh-oh, now we're stuck. This is the great God and all the rest of it. And in spite of that, the Philistines go on to win a great victory, capture the Aron, by the way, which is the ultimate disgrace, kill Chofni and Pichas the Kohanim and all the other soldiers here who don't run away, and it's a disaster. Ailey dies, as you know, it's a disaster. So what happened? The answer is they read that, but they didn't do How do I know I'm right? If you read on in the book of Shmuel, you'll see that after these defeats, and everybody's dead, the only one left is the prophet Samuel, and he says, let's try diving, but first, you know, give her the idols. And they say, okay. Ah, so you see they had idols. So then you can't bring a shechina, you know, can't bring a aron, I mean, into a battle. First you got to do a mechuko, all right, fine. Let that be. But at least this approach sounds more to the pshat, right? I will go with you. And many other mafarshim kind of go with that mahalach. Uh, I'm looking at this great page here that Jonathan Marvin sent me. Al Hatura, it's called. At the Ksava Kabbalah, Inyi Mishalach, Haholich Ona Ba'ona Lo Amokam Echa Bilvad. Now as I wander with you, not going to any particular place, I'll accompany you. That right, you know, that makes sense, right? That makes sense. Uh, but nevertheless, having said that, I do understand that the Torah can be read in uh, in two different levels, at least. And one is talking about the Gash, and one is talking about the Ruchni. There's no question about it. And I mean that. So, for example, it goes on to say, and I mentioned this in my group yesterday, that um, when the, if you don't listen, it comes to Tochacha. And what does it say? I'll smash the pride of your strength. That's not good. You know, uh, you can have a powerful army or air force and uh, God will say, I'll screw it up, I'll mess it up. I'll render the, the Shemayim like iron, and the earth like bronze. This Pashup shop means, if such a thing is possible, when you do poetry, because um, he doesn't literally mean to turn the sky into Barzal. So what it means is, right, that um, it will be no fertile, you know, the, 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 there will be no rain from upstairs, and no water from downstairs. It's it be hard like 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 uh, metal. I get that, right? I t- I totally get that. However, um, how should I put it? The the um, shemayim and arts don't really mean sky and, and ground, as you know. Not really. Eretz means the physical, and shemayim means the metaphysical. Really, so it's very interesting when Natsati shmechem kabarzel. I'll make the metaphysical world, no, it's the heavenly, the, the spiritual world, the other dimension, inaccessible to you. It'll be like Barzo. Not that it won't drop rain, but it won't drop any ruchness, you know, it won't drop any connection with the divine. And the earth will also be like that. That's already a spiritual kind of punishment. You understand? Very interesting to think of it that way, in my mind. 
So you know, if you if you him also, if you don't listen to Torah, you don't follow the laws, then you'll find yourself. Uh, what shall I say? Completely cut off from spirituality. You think today, for example, of many people that one meets, not from, and they have no spiritual interest whatsoever. Now, I'm not referring to people who are not observant, they could even be atheists, but are big idealists. They're dead types. Big liberals, I'm serious, not being funny. You know, liberals who are um, devoted to some cause or another. So, they are, they have a spirituality of a certain type. It's not mine, it's not the Torah's, but at least they have something higher than themselves. But there's so many people you find when they're not from it's, it's so materialistic that Nasati Shmechem Kabarzal, the, the Shamayan part of their existence is 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 the iron, it's cut off. You say all they're thinking about is the consumerism and materialism. And to them, if you say I'm living the life of heaven, it means that you have to have a big house and a big car. That's that's where it goes. That's where they put all their their kochas into. And that's pretty sad. Uh, for a Jew. Because uh, they have a big heritage. They don't give a darn. And, uh, and it won't change. When the... Uh, used to see... You've seen... I mean, I know a lot of people like that. And you saw it in a very heavy number of the Russian Jews came over here 20, 30 years ago coming from a materialist Soviet Union. Not all, of course. A lot, a lot not like that. But I saw a lot. Met a lot. It's all materialism. And it's sad because materialism can only go so far. Now, maybe their children will be different. You know, the problem is this is where Avodah comes from among the Jews. When the parents are just worshiping the golden calf, and the children look for another uh, ideal, as of the nature, generations rebel against each other, and uh, they won't look into Judaism. Some will, but most will not. They'll look for other gods, for other causes. This is a problem we have with those Jews today who are in favor of all kind of stupid things and anti-Israel things or whatever. It's, uh, it's how it goes. These are broad thoughts. All this leads to a general question, and that is an old one. And uh, that is, why is the Chukosai, why is everything so physical? Rashi chose, very interestingly, and probably for this reason, to interpret Vesalachti B'Sochachem as something spiritual. You look at the rest of the promises, it says, I'll give you rain, I'll give you crops, I'll give you abundance of this, that, and the other. It's like a, it's like a speech at a farmer's convention. I'll give you good hay, I'll give you good crops, I'll give you, you know, your animals won't get sick. Uh, I'm telling you, it's like the Kansas heaven. You know what I'm saying? This is the Torah. Why don't they speak in broad and lofty terms? And why don't they mention spiritual thing? If you do a mitzvah, you get a ruchnias, the kind of thing you would expect in a mashkiach speech in the yeshiva today. You know, schar mitzvah, mitzvah. That the mitzvah itself is the mitzvah. And all that sort of thing. And the highest madregas, dvekas. All the kind of language that the Jewish tradition has evolved in terms of advanced and lofty spirituality, you don't actually find in the Chumash. What you find is, like I say, farmer's convention. You do this and this, this, you get good land, good crops, good animals, good produce. Perhaps I'll give you gold and silver. So now, you know, you know your mom is talking the language of a bunch of chams. That's how the chumash is written. You know, you want to get rich? Keep the Shabbos. 
Believe me, if people thought, how should I put it, that, uh, you know, you keep Shabbos, you get rich, a lot more Jews would keep Shabbos. But what kind of a Shabbos? They've been taking off kapars. They have no ruchnis whatsoever. They'd be looking over their shoulder all the time saying, look, I kept three Saturdays in a row. I want to get a raise. I want to win the lottery. So it's funny. Now, different commentators for a long time in the old days, Middle Ages, were preoccupied with this issue of the Yehudeya Torah, as they call it, the promises in the Torah, which are always very physical. And why don't you find in the Yehudeya Torah any reference to lofty spirituality? You don't find any reference to Olam Habo, to Ganeiden, Scharbonish in that sense. It's always worldly. Take, for example, the second paragraph of Shema that we say every day. I'm giving grass for your animals. I mean, come on, right? And if you don't, then you won't get any material goodness. No rain. It's like I say, it's like a farmer's thing. So, why is it written like that? Uh, the Abarbanel, who I mentioned in the past, is always good to me when he gets to these kind of issues because he becomes encyclopedic. And what he does is, he says, this issue of the material promises versus the spiritual promises that one finds in the pre- uh, preface to the Tochacha, or that sort of thing, you know, what has been written on this subject? And he identifies seven approaches. So if you're interested in this this week, take a look at the Barbara, beginning of the Chukasai, but he's long. i got to warn you, he's long. And he'll tell you all the classic approaches of the Roshonim. If you're too lazy to do that, then I'll tell you an abbreviated form. And the abbreviated form is Kliyakar. The Kliyakar undertakes, in his commentary on Chukasai, to be a bridged version of the Barbanel. Get it? A bridged version. And I'm going to run through it very quickly for you. And I won't do it justice, but I'm just, so hopefully I'm whetting your appetite. And this will give you something to do on Shabbos. Right? And he says over here, in the Pasuk of Hisalachti B'Sochacheb, after quoting Rashi, he says over here that Rashi's giving this spiritualistic interpretation because Rashi is obviously bothered by what bothered all these other philosophers, which is how come there's nothing spiritual mentioned in Bechukosai. It's always material. But, according to Rashi, if you interpret which is not, let's be honest, of all the promises, that's one that cannot be literal. God is not physical, so it can't be I can't walk with you. Get it? Noach. Noah walked with the Lord. So since blatantly the translation of the verse cannot be literal, and it can mean God will walk with you, so it must be spiritual. Or, so Rashi saying, you see, there's a clear reference, if you understand how to decode the Bible, it's a clear reference to a spiritual reward. And in light of that, you can interpret it, the subsequent physical rewards and punishments that are outlined in the Parsha Chukosai. And uh, Kleoker says his words. And he's Daitul Asalik Mial Torosina Kadosha, Kolton and Mar. The purpose that Rashi gives this interpretation instead of, for example, 
the plainer and more Ibn Ezra type of uh, interpretations is to uh, push off those who say, who have tinies in the Torah, who say, I have room to complain. If the Torah makes no reference to a spiritual uh, reward, obviously the 613 mitzvahs can't do that. But rather, the 613 mitzvahs are more by the way of a social contract. They will keep, and Maimonides says this in the Guide for Perplex also, that if you keep the Torah, among other things, you get a well-run society. Let's face it. You dress a certain way, you eat a certain way, you have a certain discipline, that promotes a good society. But that has nothing to do with the Ruchni side of it. So, Right? And it must be that everything involved in the Torah is Olam Hazah oriented. The reason you do the mitzvahs, it would seem, he says, to get material rewards in this disgusting world, because material rewards in themselves are junk. And he goes on to say, I, the Kliyakar, I'm not the first guy to approach this problem. Many have. And if you look through them, you end up with seven opinions. And the Barbara lays out the seven opinions, but at great length. But I want to give it to you short and sweet and dumb. So, it's very interesting. Uh, that doesn't mean each one of you here is going to be persuasive, but each one is what you call a classic Torah position. This is possibly familiar to you. I don't know who you are listening to this, but if you're familiar with the essays of the Rambam, so in a number of places, for example, and other places like that, Rama's basic approach, which is a super rational, logical one, is that the... But it's very, very smart. I mean, it makes a lot of sense. And that is, the rewards of material prosperity are not the end in themselves, but a means to an end. If God says, if you do this and that and the other, I'll give you peace and prosperity, the meaning, according to the Rambam, is as follows. Once you have peace and prosperity, you can sit and learn. <laughs> Get it? And ultimately, go beyond just learning Gemara to, you know, in the Maimadian fashion, thinking intelligently about Ruchnias, right? Which is to him the Vegas. So it's not that's just a fancy way of saying, according to the Rambam, that if you keep the mitzvahs, I will put you in the right place at the right time in history. Because if you're in the worst, I get it, you can't sit and learn. If you're in Auschwitz, you can't sit and learn. Frankly, if you're in Soviet Russia, most of the time you couldn't sit and learn. You understand? If you're born, God forbid, with a terrible illness or a handicap or something, you can't sit and learn. You, you get what I'm saying? Take so much for granted based on the fact of luck. You hope that God arranges that you, the person I'm talking to now, is born in the right time, in the right family. You're not uh, a child of two parent abusers who, who, you know, who mess you up psychologically and all this, you can't sit and learn like that either, right? You can't do it. Or, you know, bad friends who mess you over and stuff like this. I myself heard, many years ago, uh, when all this sexual abuse stuff was popping up the public view, 
was that 10, 15 years ago, something like that, more, it started coming out of the woodwork. And uh, the rabbis in Baltimore had like a, a one-day session. It was very good, actually. He brought in speakers and all this. Speak about the idea. And the uh, opening address was from the Rashiva near Israel by Aaron Feldman. And he said, I'll tell you a story and then I'm leaving. And then he was in uh, B'nai Brock, wherever, or something like this. And there was a kid who was good in learning. All of a sudden was bad in learning. A uh, kid, you know. If I remember correctly, 10, 11, 12 years old, something along those lines. It was going good and all of a sudden not. And the parents couldn't get them to learn and they're going crazy. Uh, and by the time it's all over, it turned, and they hired a special tutor for him. And by the time it's all over, the rabbi or the tutor or somebody molested him on top of a Gemara. Now, you don't have to be Sigmund Freud to put that together. So, Venosati Bitaras Chimbito means, I'll arrange, God says, if you keep the midst all the rest of it, you won't have such a Kabusa. You won't have such a bar mitzvah teacher. You won't have such a rebbe. You won't have such friends. And you live a normal life, and then you'll have good health, and you'll have good social environment, and then you can, quote-unquote, if you're so inclined, you can devote your life in being in kolel, or some variation of that, or, you know, become a doctor, and you know, you'll be able to have a big ruchnius. So the material rewards them are the necessary uh, grounding for a life of spiritual success. Um, and the Rambam being a doctor and having lived under Islamic terrorism back in Spain, I mean, you know, he's speaking from first hand over here. So that's one way of approaching it. That's why the Torah always speaks about the material stuff, because the material stuff is extremely important. I don't mean wealth and decadence, but I mean basic sustenance. Like most of us, I think, have in America or Israel today, usually, I mean, everybody's different, but if you have the basic amount that you're able to, uh, you know, uh, again, to use modern terminology, you're able to put aside an hour or two, you know, for, for the dafyomi, for the this, for that, and the other, to to, to uh, cultivate your uh, Torah literature side, your spiritual side. That requires a middle-class uh, parnosa. You see? Now, Hadea um, Shniya is Ibn Ezra, he says, which is in Hazinu, and he says, HaTorah Nitna Lola Kol, the Torah can be understood as applying to a, a seaboard and not to a yachid. Okay? And that's why uh, the spirituality is an individualistic property. Uh, which is a very interesting approach. The seaboard, you have to give them material promises. The yachid is a different story. And um, uh, Ibn Ezra, obviously, like the Rambam, is, is an aristocrat by his background. All the commentaries in the Torah probably are written by aristocrats, if you think about it. I don't mean that they're rich, but they have that aristocratic mentality. They're members of an elite. And he says, Since the Torah is written for the public, so public understands cash, money, rewards, health, uh, property, prosperity. They can't understand, you know, Ruchnias, and this sort of thing. And therefore, the Torah doesn't speak in those terms. That's the approach of Ezra. Hadea Shlisha is the Rebbein of Achayah, where he talks about, and I didn't like it, he says, from the fact that his chorus must mean you're cut off from some good uh, spiritual uh, thing. So if the Torah tells us a thing called chorus, it leaves you the imagination that there must be some wonderful spiritual reality behind it that the person who doesn't get chorus, who keeps the missus, attains. I don't know, it doesn't work for me. Um, 
The idea of Vias is um, the approach of the Kuzari and uh, the drushes around, which is actually kind of interesting. And what he says is, over there, this is, uh, remember, the Kuzari was written in the context of a debate between religions, correct? You know, and um, the Kuzari, I mean, it's a very Jewish kind of argument. And it goes like this. What does the Torah promise you? Uh, heaven? Uh, wine, women, and song in, in Allah, you know, in, in, in some uh, spiritual realm? Any religion can promise that, and they do. I remember many years ago, reading, many, many, many years ago, reading something from, I think, Dorothy Schiff, visited Palestine. She owned the New York Times, I think, or the New York Post. She was the daughter of Jacob Schiff, I think, or a daughter-in-law. And, uh, you know, the zillionaire. And uh, she visited Palestine in the 1920s. I think her husband was Jewish, but maybe not. And she ran into a Christian missionary in Palestine, British Palestine, in the 1920s. And his job is to go and try to convert the Muslims. And she says, how's the malacha going? And he says, it's a bummer. Why? He says, I try to promise him, you know, I, I, I try to make a Muslim convert to Christianity. Uh, they say like this, what are you offering? I say, spiritual bliss with Yashke. He said, the heck with that. My guy promised me, you know, it, like in the Quran, wine, women, and song, and rivers of wine. And things like that. So I get a better deal, more bang for the buck if I join for the Islam. And that's, you know, the approach that says you can promise anything, uh, but the higher you promise, the more followers you get. After all, no one's ever going to know because it all happens after you die. And so the whole thing could be a lie. And that's what religions do. They do pie in the sky. So the Kuzari, uh, arguing with the king, says, see, the Torah doesn't want to uh, do that. The Torah is like this. I'll promise you real things. You'll be able to test it. You'll be able to test it. If the Jewish people do the right thing, you will see that things will work out for them. God, prosperity and peace and expansion and all the rest of it. And that's something you can test. So the Torah is a true book. So it gives you empirically verifiable promises. That's the approach of the Kuzri and the Ron. It's always kind of cute. The only problem is, does it ever work? So the answer is yes and no. There are times, going by what it says in the Torah, there are times when you had good kings and there was peace and prosperity. On the other hand, there are times when you had good kings and there wasn't. Alternatively, there are times when there were bad kings, we're told in the Tanakh, and it was good. Uh, two examples jump to my mind. Chizkiyahu uh, was supposed to be real good. And it says, something like that. After Chizkiyahu did all the things to fix up the kingdom of Yehuda after his father had messed things up. After he did all these from things, came the invasion by Ashur, the Assyrian army under Sancherev, in which they wiped out like 90-some percent of the country in horrible ways. And only at the gates of Jerusalem was there a miracle at the last moment. Which is a great story, but it ignores the fact that the rest of the kingdom of Yehuda had been absolutely devastated. I mean, people were killed by the Syrians. And if you want to see graphic Pictures of this go to the museum or go on the Google and you see the siege of Lachish, which is, you know, uh, depicted by the Assyrians in their uh, art. Uh, and you see like a devastating attack on a Jewish city and the impaling of the Jews and the horrors the Byzantine population. And so why did a nice guy like Chizkiel get a terrible war like that? It should be the other way around. Should have been a bad king. And that's why the Assyrians evaded. 
And the Gemara tries to figure that out. In the, the last paragraph of Sanhedrin, you know, basically they say it could have been Gogamogo, whatever, whatever Mahalach. But it's considered to be, so to speak, a blip in the pattern. Usually, when it's a good king, it's a good time. When the Jewish people keep the mitzvahs, it's supposed to be a good time. That's the basic argument of the Kuzuri. And uh, it's interesting that in the book of Malachim, you had the king of Yehuda, king of Israel, the northern king, the, the northern king, they say, the best of the kings of the north, even though each and every one of them worshipped Deglazov, was Yerovim II for a number of reasons. And he conquered land from the Goyim, and, you know, he was a powerful king, and the Jews had it good in his time. But he was wicked. He worshipped the golden calf. And uh, the Pasuk in, in Malachim says, you know, why did this happen? And the answer, meaning it doesn't fit the right pattern. In is one way, and is another way. And it endeavors to give a reason. God couldn't stand the enemy rejoicing and crushing the Jews down to nothing. In other words, God could not take the arrogance of Hitler. It's got nothing to do with the Jews being good or bad. But the arrogance of the Goyim drove him, and, and therefore he said, to punish you, I'll make the Jews successful. Which goes to show you can't game the system, you know. But nevertheless, having said that, that seems to be the approach of the, uh, of the Kuzari and the Jerusha Saran. And then you have another two out there. You can look at ones in the Mornavuchim, or rather, yeah, and from Sajigum, actually, who, uh, who says that, uh, you know, it used to be that people believed the idols would bring material prosperity, but now you'll see, you'll be able to test for yourself that those who worship the idols don't, and those who don't worship the idols do. And, yeah, I don't know, that's from Sajigon, really, originally. And he's got two more. You can look at it yourself, right? So, um, all I'm trying to say is, it doesn't work so well for a modern person, these kind of approaches. They're very neat, and, uh, as they say, kind of dialectical. You, know, you have a question, you have an answer, it wraps things up. But it's not, to me, anyway, I can tell, all I can tell you is what's with me. Why should you uh, fool around? It's not Ms. Yashiv, Alev. There's, uh, you know, uh, the question is better than the answers, in my opinion. I can only tell you my opinion. And I say this because now Shabbos is coming. We're all going to the Tochacha. Um, try to figure it out on your own. Maybe come with a better answer than I do. I'm serious. I'm not being funny. And uh, it's just remarkable, though, that uh, these striking historical uh, events means that Jewish people are condemned never to have a normal history. We're either going to have a, something where we're real high or real low. That's the meaning of the Tochacha. When times are good, the Jews are are, are, are very good, are, are very well off. When times are bad, the Jews are not. They're not like people of Switzerland, you know, or something like that. Was, the history is boring. We Jews do not have a boring history, unfortunately. Uh, we'd rather have a boring history if you ask us. That's not our destiny. Looking back after 3,000 years, you can see certain facts sort of jump out at you as being characteristic of Jewish destiny. And two of them come to mind. And I think I'll close it down with that. One is the question of numbers, numerical. We Jews are destined throughout thousands of years of history, 3,500 years now at least, to be small in number. That's just very interesting to me, you know? Small in number. There are only a few million Jews in the world today, as we all know. And it's always been like that, relative to the world population. If we would be a bigger people, we'd probably have a different destiny and different history, but we're not. And so, 
For some reason, the good Lord decided long ago this is going to be a small people, but very potent. You understand? But also be of art in quality and not in quantity. I think it's the Rambam who says that when Avram tell, uh, is told, your children will be like the Kochayashan, like the stars in the heaven, doesn't mean uh, numerous, but it means they'll shine, the stars shine in the dark. So the Jews will excel in, in, in quality. To use modern terminology for the 21st century, we win all the Nobel Prizes. You understand? Know if you want to be from, you have the Torah scholarship. Uh, but the Jews aren't normal, just regular. You find the Jewish community, you don't find people just going around doing their work like everybody else and living in here. And unfortunately, for better or worse, you see a manifestation of this in the corona thing going on now. Because the Jews ain't normal, right? You look at the guy, they just observe the, 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 you know, the, the rules, and then they put up with it. And the Jews, you know, they're always pushing against the scenes. Here, Lakewood, Israel, can't do with the regular, because we're not like everybody else. We have this kind of energy or whatever that can express itself in a sublime way, or in a stupid way, or in a stupid way, as we see from all these videos on, online, the unfortunate videos. So one of them is our small numbers, right? Now that's the interesting thing. Uh, and the other one is our dram dramatic destiny. Jews always living in drama. It's never normal. It's never quiet. Times are good or times are bad. You understand? The Jews are going up, 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 or they're going down, down, down. I mean it. And so we always watch with bated breath what's happening with Israel every day. And... You know, it's, and Israel's always hanging by a thread. And it's chayuch, like it said, you never know what it's going to be. And uh, it's not like another regular country. The Israelis themselves have a whole fantasy. Why can't we just be in a desert island? I mean, on a on a separate island out in the Pacific Ocean, you know, like New Zealand or something like that. That would be the Jewish country. And everybody just leave us the heck alone. I agree with that. Uh, that's a nice dream. But it's not <laughs> what God said. I've said it. He decided to stick us Right in the eye of the Middle East. Great move, you know. If you're looking for peace and quiet, that's not where you're going to get. That means Yisrael is not destined to live a life of peace and quiet. It's just interesting. We'll either do and then, you know, one of you will chase a thousand of them, or one of them will chase a thousand of you. That's a very interesting prediction. It means you always be up, 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 in a, in a miraculous, in a crazy way, or it'd be down, 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 also in a crazy way. And we have seen this in our destiny. So these are just a few thoughts that run through the mind that kind of present themselves as obvious when you look at a partial like Bechukosai. And with that, I bid you a good Shabbos. And I hope somebody will, uh, will step forward to help out on these uh, uh, sponsorships.